All right, so we've come to our time of question and answer, and it's really important to us as a staff, as well as our pastors, to hear the questions that you have on a topic, even one as, um, as important as heaven and the afterlife. And so just wanted to let you know, we had a lot of questions submitted. And so we had to kind of categorize and sum up some questions. So if you don't hear your direct question, it may have, been, it may have had to wrap up in another form of a question. So we did try to answer as many questions as we, we could. But just to let you know that all of these questions today will be answered uh, with three criterion and those are listed on the back of the bulletin as well as some of the questions so you can take notes and I promise you'll want to take notes this morning on some of these questions but just to let you know that these criteria are uh, important to our pastors and the first one is is that always interpret scripture with scripture and so that's the the first one the second one is to always see everything through the lens of Jesus and then also the third criteria is to always consider the context when reading scripture. So they'll be answering these questions with scripture. And so these were important things for you to know that we're taking into consideration when answering these questions. So are y'all ready for these yeah, answers? Yeah, let's okay. Do it. Let's go. All right. Well, let's get started. The first question is for Jonathan. What happens to our bodies after death in heaven and in the new creation? We had a lot of questions around this. What happens to my body? Uh, do I have a body in heaven? What's the timing of it? It's an important question. And part of the reason that it's confusing is because a lot of really smart, godly uh, people who are pursuing Christ have different perspectives on what happens and when. And so what I wanna to try to do is to give you those perspectives and give you some places in scripture to go to. Now, some of these questions, even our teaching team, we have a, a little bit of variety on how we understand Scripture and what it teaches. So it's important to us to give you the tools. So let's start with what we do know. We do know from Scripture that we are going to have glorified bodies. Paul and Peter in the epistles talk about pretty clearly that just as Jesus had a glorified new body that was not like his human body on earth, we too are going to have a glorified body that's not going to be the same as the broken, uh, sinful body that we have now. And that body's going to be pretty amazing. We've talked about that in this series, that just some of the things that Jesus did, uh, we're going to experience. We're not going to get sick. Uh, we're not going to age. Uh, I, from the scriptural witness, uh, it does not appear that we're going to need food for sustenance, that food is going to be for enjoyment and blessing. And so our bodies are not going to have the same human functions that we have now. Uh, it's going to be different. We're not going to be limited in the way that we do uh, are, are now, but there's going to be a physical glorified new body. Now, the timing of it is where it gets tricky because there's some uh, very different perspectives on when we get our glorified body. So what I wanna do is I wanna give you four perspectives that the church wrestles with uh, when it comes to when do I get my glorified body. The first two perspectives are looking at it as though we get our new body immediately in what we have called the intermediate heaven, if you've been with us. And then the second two perspectives talk about getting a new body sometime in the future 
but not immediately in the intermediate heaven. Those, these glorified bodies are seen to be for the new creation that comes when Christ comes again. So what are those perspectives? So here's the first two. Uh, number one, some people believe that I'll receive a new body the very moment that I die. You know, Paul says to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. And in that moment, they believe that we get a new body and we enter into the intermediate heaven. They look at the uh, descriptions in Revelation of it being a physical space and that we're clothed and that we're with Christ. And we know Jesus, who has a physical glorified body, is in the intermediate heaven. He's with God. And so they believe we, too, will have that glorified body in the moment we die. Another perspective is that it won't be the final glorified body that we get, but it'll be a temporary body that God gives us to inhabit in the intermediate heaven. That the new glorified body will be given to us later, but that we are not just floating around spiritually. There's something that happens in that moment temporarily. Now the next two perspectives see us having a glorified body sometime in the future. Uh, one of those is that we will receive our glorified body, not in the very moment that we die, but when Christ initiates what is called the rapture or the snatching up. And that is just one of the theological perspectives. We need to understand that not every Christian holds that, uh, but many do. And they believe that when the rapture comes and when Jesus snatches up, uh, that we'll receive our glorified body at that moment. Now, just to be completely vulnerable and honest, that is my perspective, but that's not everybody's perspective. It's not even all the perspectives on our pastoral team across our campuses. And then number four, some believe that we'll have a, a spirit in heaven and that we won't get our glorified bodies till Christ comes in his second coming to bring the new creation. So four perspectives. So how do you decide? I'm gonna give you uh, a couple of scriptures here to, for you to go look at and, help, and I want you to pray about what do you think Scripture teaches. So one is 1 Peter 3.22. And in 1 Peter 3.22, we are told that Jesus most definitely has a physical glorified body in heaven right now. That he is resurrected. He's a physical glorified body with God. Now, a second Scripture, Philippians 3.21, is where Paul tells us, that just like Jesus has a new glorified imperishable body, we too are going to have a imperishable glorified body not broken by sin. You can bank on that, that that is going to uh, be something that we receive. All right, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23. Go check that out this week. It says that Jesus is going to come and he is going to initiate the resurrection of the dead that not until Jesus makes a move toward us and initiates this process will we get a new glorified body. And finally, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17 tells us that the dead are going to rise first, that we will not receive a glorified body before those saints who have gone on before us. And that we need to hold that in whatever perspective we have to know that they're not going to be overlooked, but the dead will rise in Christ first. So important scriptures for us to look at, but it all boils down to this, whatever the timing is gonna be, we know that there's an intermediate heaven, there's a new creation to come, and by the time we enter that new creation, we're gonna have glorified, new, imperishable, perfected bodies that will not have sickness, will not have sin, will not have brokenness. It's gonna be brand new, and we're gonna be in a physical world where God will live with us, and it's gonna be an amazing, unbelievable life with him. 
we're looking forward to that. Thanks, Jonathan. Mm -hmm. The next mm -hmm. question is for Greg. What is the tribulation and who is involved? Yeah, the uh, tribulation is really a hot topic when we're talking about what some people would call the end times. Uh, there are several positions on what the tribulation is, but I'm going to give you two predominant positions, uh, pretty much where people are today. There, there are several others, but the first depends on how you view what the second coming is and when that happens. Uh, most people that fall in this camp are called amillennialists. They do not believe that there will be a literal thousand year reign of Jesus at the end. And they believe that right now we're living in tribulation, that it is an allegory of, of scripture for a time period we're living in now. Uh, those that take a more literal view of scripture are called premillennialist, and it, it follows a timeline that uh, there is a rapture uh, for the church. There is a literal seven-year uh, time frame that is recorded in the book of Daniel and in Revelation that talks about a time period when there will be a global leader called the Antichrist that will uh, reign on earth. And uh, he will make a peace treaty at the beginning of this tribulation with Israel. And at the beginning of that peace treaty, uh, there will be a second temple. They will reinstitute uh, sacrifices. And, and the one half of that time frame in three and a half years, he's going to break that treaty. He will enter the temple, declare himself God, and then require that uh, people alive on earth at that time either take what's called his mark. You may have heard of it as the mark of the beast. And if you take that mark, you're doomed eternally. If you don't take that mark, you are going to give up your life for Jesus. You're going to be martyred. So uh, it is a uh, time of judgment on the earth. If you go through Revelation 6 all the way through 17, it's, a, it's really a, a, a horrifying time to think of tribulation on this earth. And then at the end of those seven years, Jesus returns with the church to set up his millennial kingdom. There's a thousand year period. And then Satan's locked up at the end of that. Satan's released. There's a final battle. Then uh, the new heaven and new earth are created. So this really be, uh, depends on what your uh, belief system is. If you take a more uh, allegorical spiritualization of scripture, then you would probably say, yes, this is a tribulation, maybe you know, a time period we are living in. If not, then we, we have something to look forward to for the church. So, Thanks, Greg. The next question is for Hunter. What are the judgments after death? Yeah, so we know that Scripture is very clear on that there are two judgments uh, that we face after death. So let's talk about the first one. first one happens as soon as we die, and we find that in Hebrews 9.27. Uh, tells us that we find ourselves before Jesus uh, at that moment of death, and we'll either be judged right at that moment, either to uh, the intermediate heaven, or we'll be cast into uh, hell, Hades, the place where we will uh, be apart from God, place of torment uh, that we realized uh, early in this series of scripture. Um, and what we find though is that it's Jesus himself who is the one who judges 
at that moment. Uh, we find that uh, from 2 Corinthians uh, 5.10, Paul tells us, uh, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due of the things of us done while in the body, whether good or bad. Um, and we have to remember, too, that, that Jesus holds the keys, right, uh, to be able to judge because he's been given all authority by God. So because Jesus is the judge, this is also God's judgment as well. Now, this judgment is based on how we have lived our life, right? Like there is a reward that comes. And when you think about it, God is just in every single way, so much more just than any of us could ever be. And so in his justice, in his righteousness of who God is, what do we all deserve? I'm pretty sure none of our deeds are good enough to make it to heaven. But for us who are, who are Christians who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ because of the blood of the Son, when we appear at that moment of judgment, it's Jesus' righteousness that is seen, not ours. Right? And praise God. Thank you, Lord. That is his grace on full display uh, for us. And so for us as Christians, there's nothing for us to fear whenever we make it to this judgment. Um, because we are judged based, uh, based upon Jesus' righteousness and not our own. And so that's a, that's a great thing for us to, to, uh, to hold on to. Now, this idea of rewards, because uh, here's Paul talking about we're going to receive what's due us. Uh, Jesus and, and several other places in the New Testament as well, they don't shy away from this idea that there are rewards that we receive for the good deeds that we do here on the earth. And so here's the thing is that how we live today definitely does matter, right? Uh, it's not just to be thrown away uh, because, you know, I think as Bonhoeffer calls it cheap grace. This isn't cheap grace that we've received, but it's been very costly uh, and so we should do something with our lives because of it. And so until Jesus returns, all right, uh, the, to the earth and, and ushers in the inauguration and the new creation, we are going to face this judgment, all right, when we die. Now, there is a second judgment to come, all right? Um, Jesus will be at the very center of this, and he speaks about it uh, several times. Uh, Revelation speaks to it as well. It is a dreadful day uh, to, to come, all right? But Jesus leads this, this, uh, this day, he, he leads in the new creation with it. Mark 13, 26 and 27 talks about this great ingathering of God's people, all right? And Jesus says this, he says, Then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory, and he will send out his angels to gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. Now, he goes on in that same Mark, uh, Matthew 13, uh, or he, he goes on to describe more about this outgathering, if you will, uh, that will happen as well. So there's this ingathering of God's people, but then there's an outgathering as well. Matthew 13, uh, 41 through 42, Jesus says this, the son of man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will be thrown into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here's this thing about the, this, this judgment to come, all right? Is that all created things, all right? Let's say that again. All, everything, all created things will face this judgment. Humans, angels, Satan himself, demons, all of it will face this judgment. 
They're going to stand before Jesus, the great white throne judgment, and they will give account to what they have done. Uh, Revelation talks about this. And so here's what's going to happen. Either you receive eternal life with God in the new creation, or you are cast into the lake of fire apart from God forever. And so Satan and his demons are going to be thrown into this lake of fire. All who have not been uh, found to have trusted and placed their faith in Jesus Christ at this point, their righteousness, they're leaning on their own righteousness and not the righteousness of God. They will not be uh, in the new creation to enjoy God forever. They'll be in this lake of fire. And Jesus tells us that in Matthew 25 and Revelation uh, does a great job of, of really laying out more of what this looks like uh, as this judgment occurs. But for all those who've surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ, right, who've trusted him, who've placed their faith in him, it's eternal life with God and the new creation. That's the destiny that we have. That's the destiny that we hold on to. That's the destiny we have to look forward to. And so we need to live lives on that promise, hanging on to him. Uh, and see where, where he's going to take us and surrender our lives to him because Jesus, Jesus is the key to it all, right? Thank you, Hunter. That's the good news, isn't it? Mm -hmm. All right, the next set of questions that we have are our quick response questions, and those are the ones that don't require um, as long of an answer, so we're going to start with Greg. Okay, so we got a lot of questions on this one. Will our pets be in heaven? You wouldn't believe how many we got on this, but... <laughs> Uh, in Genesis, when God created animals and he created man, we get these two words, living creatures that are translated from the Hebrew, nefesh haim, which means living soul. So we know that animals and humans have the same attributes with except of one thing. Animals are not created in God's image. Human beings are created in God's image. So my question then is, your question is, I don't know. Is God going to have our pets in heaven? We have no idea. Will there be pets in heaven? Probably. I love my dog more than anything in the world. But here's where we have to be careful, church. We really have to be careful. Romans 1.25 says that we have to worship the creator over the creation. And sometimes I worry that our modern society elevates our pets to a status over people, over our neighbors, and we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, not our pet as ourselves. So I think there's a caution there for us as well, but I don't think scripture gives us a definite answer on that. Yeah. All right. And one thing to note is that whatever happens is we're not going to be lacking no. or unsatisfied in heaven, yeah. whatever that looks like. Mm -hmm. Another question we had was, will we eat meat in heaven? Uh, we got a lot of these. Apparently, there's a lot of carnivores in the congregation, and they're super concerned about their steak and uh, ribs or whatever else. And, and I will take a little bit of blame for this. Uh, in our week two, our week three, we talked about what can we experience in heaven in the new creation. And we looked at Isaiah 25, this description of this banquet that God is going to provide for us. And it says, we'll have the finest of wines and the finest of meats. And you're doing exactly what we asked you to do because some of you said, well, Isaiah 11 says that all animals will live in peace, not only with one another, but with us without fear. And then Revelation 21 says that there's no death in heaven and the new creation. So how does this compute? Well, remember, we interpret Scripture with Scripture, and much of the time, if you'll read through the Bible, you'll find tensions, mm -hmm. not contradictions, 
but tensions that have to be held together. And this is one of those places. And really, it only leaves you with two options. So if we eat meat uh, in the new creation, then it's going to be one of two things. Either God is going to supernaturally provide meat for us without causing death and harm, and God is God, so why not? Or the other option is Isaiah 25 is a metaphor for how unbelievably good the food will be using the framework that we have now, because I'm, you know, I'm definitely will never be confused for a vegetarian. Uh, I love a good steak. And when I think about a good meal, it always involves that. And so it's that framework and that's the, the, the words we have to describe it, but it, it's gonna be amazing, whatever it will be. So will we eat meat? I'm not sure, but if we do, I promise you God's not gonna contradict himself. There will not be death or animosity between humans and animals. Another question that came in, will we have denominations in heaven? The very quick answer is no. When we get to heaven, we get to the new creation, it's going to be complete unity. Uh, Paul tells us in Galatians 3.28, there's no more divisions in heaven. Uh, in Revelation 15 verse 4, we get a description where every single person is going to be drawn to Jesus and the deeds of Christ will be revealed to all. In other words, all of our questions are gonna to come to Jesus. All of our answers are gonna come from Jesus. All of our understanding is gonna be revealed to us from him. And why is that important? Because the birth of denominations, they come out of our pursuit to answer theological questions based on human reasoning, and we come to different answers, so we have divisions called denominations. And guess what? Now all of our questions are answered not by human reasoning, but from Christ himself. And so no more divisions, no more denominations. Yeah, another question we got was, will we work in heaven? You might be surprised to find out this, but yes, uh, we will work in heaven. Uh, we tend to think of work as something that's burdensome and uh, full of toil and futility, it seems like. Uh, part of that's a fall, uh, curse from the fall, uh, from sin. Uh, but what we will find is that in heaven and in uh, the new creation, the life to come, it will be uh, fruitful. It will be joy-filled. Um, it will be fulfilling as it existed before uh, the fall. You see, work was given to man even before we fell in sin. It's just now we live in a sinful world, and that's just what we have to live in uh, today. But man, can you imagine uh, how much better that is that we get to work and be fulfilled in it uh, create things in the new creation. Uh, and that's way better to me than floating on a cloud, right? I mean, I would much rather do that. Uh, sounds better. So, yes, we will work uh, in heaven. Okay. Well, uh, the next question is, what does the throne of Jesus look like? Well, we have uh, several places in Scripture that gives this imagery. Uh, you can, in the Old Testament, we've got the book of Daniel, we have Ezekiel, we have Isaiah, and then in Revelation 4 and 5, the Apostle John was uh, caught up to heaven to give this imagery that we know there's a throne, that God sits on that throne, there are creatures surrounding the throne, there's 24 elders that surround the throne, so... Uh, that's what it looks like. You need to go read those, read those passages. 
Will we be aware of what happens on earth from heaven? Well, Scripture gives us a couple of different instances uh, where those in heaven are aware of what's happening on earth. Uh, Hebrews 12.1 talks about that great cloud of witnesses that is cheering us on uh, from heaven as we're in our daily spiritual struggles. Uh, We find at the transfiguration, uh, Jesus is meeting with Elijah and Moses, uh, and they talk about events that are happening on earth. And so clearly they know uh, what's happening uh, as well from that in Luke 9. Um, But, you know, one of the questions that I've wondered, and I think that it's kind of behind this as well, is will we be in heaven and and be worried about our loved ones or the evil that we see happening on the earth? Like, will we be grieved by this? And the answer is no. And this is why. Because whenever we get to heaven, after we face that judgment and we've been judged by the righteousness of Jesus, we're going to know that every bit of God's plan is coming to fruition. There will be nothing for us to mourn. Because God's kingdom is coming, period. It will be established. Evil will be done away with. Uh, God's master plan is going to happen. There will be no doubt to us at all. And so um, I think that that there's that certainty that will be there uh, that will help us to not mourn uh, what we see still happening on earth during that time. So so similar to that, not only are we aware of what (laughs) happens on earth, but are we aware of the loved ones who are not saved. In other words, will we be aware of people that we love that don't end up with us in heaven? This is a really important question. Now, just as Hunter said, we will be aware of what happens on earth. Hebrews 12, 1 is pretty clear of that. Uh, cloud of witnesses, they're cheering us on. But what about, are we aware of those people who didn't end up with us in heaven? Well, the, again, there's two theological perspectives. One is that we will be aware of those who are not with us in heaven, but through a a perspective of God's plan and purpose, and through his understanding, we'll we'll have a clarity. The other perspective is that we will not be aware of those who are not with us in heaven. That tends to be where I land, and let me share with you why. A couple of scriptures here. Uh, Luke 16 is the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. As you read through that story, you will discover that the rich man who is in hell is very aware of what's happening with Lazarus, but we are never told that Lazarus is aware of what's happening from heaven in hell. There's never a description of Lazarus having an understanding of that. Uh, Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 19, and Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, both describe heaven and they say that it is a new thing and that the old thing has passed away and the former things will be remembered no more. Now, I will note that in Revelation 21, uh, verses 1 through 4, we, are, we do see a description of God himself wiping away our tears, which could be a description of a grief of those who are not loved ones. So that perspective is a possibility. Uh, but here's one thing that we can be clear of. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, that right now we see it dimly as through a a dirty, foggy mirror, but then we will see clearly. And the word that he uses there for clearly or fully, it doesn't mean we will know everything. It means that what we do know will be perfect and complete and correct. And so whatever knowledge we have in heaven will be through the perspective of God's truth, God's plan, God's purpose. And I can promise you this, whether we know or we don't know, we will be completely satisfied. There will be no lacking, there will be no pain, 
we will be completely comforted, completely at peace, completely at joy, because that's what God has waiting for us. Okay. I have one here. It says, is the new Jerusalem literal? Yes. A Revelation 21 talks that when we have the new creation of the new heaven and the new earth, that Jerusalem literally is going to be a literal place. It gives dimensions. It is a perfect uh, Width, same width, height, and length. Uh, it's 12,000 stadia. Revelation says that's equal to about 1,380 miles, which if you take this as literal, it's probably about a third, a little over a third of the United States, the size. So yes, there, it's going to be the capital of the world. It's where Jesus himself will reside. There will be no temple needed because God will be with us on earth there. Another question that came in was, what is God like in heaven? And I, I think there was more specific to that. What about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Will we see them? Uh, and the answer there is uh, yes. So God the Father will sit on the throne. He's sitting there now. Uh, he's sovereign. He is uh, the judge, the, the ruler of all creation, uh, his ultimate rule. Uh, we see that is, uh, in, in many of the Old Testament prophets show God uh, there in heaven. Um, even in John's revelation. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 tells us of Jesus Christ, God's son, right, is sitting beside uh, God's throne. He intercedes on our behalf. He's also the judge uh, as well. And then as for uh, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, uh, the Holy Spirit is uh, at work uh, doing the will and the love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all together uh, to bring about the plan there in heaven and to also work here on earth uh, in the way that the Spirit does. And so, uh, yes, we will see the triune God uh, at work in heaven. So, All right. All right, last quick answer question. Uh, how did Satan rebel if there's no sin in heaven? Well, we're beginning that question with an assumption that is not accurate to Scripture. So we're assuming that there was no sin in heaven or possible in heaven when the, the biblical witness is that there was very clearly the possibility of sin in heaven because Satan, who was an angel, he was a, a cherubim, if we look at Ezekiel and Isaiah's description of him, was very capable of rejecting God, and he did out of pride. He sinned against God, and he started a great war with a third of the angels against God in heaven. So just as sin was a possibility on earth, it was a possibility in heaven with the first creation. Now, in the new creation, there will not be the possibility of heaven, I mean, of, of sin. Now, why is that? Because God allowed sin in the first creation to accomplish a very clear purpose. And what is that purpose? Well, God knew that allowing for the possibility of sin in the first creation, both with the angels and humanity, would be the clearest way for God to reveal his character to us. And once that character was revealed, it would be made clear in the new creation and so no longer the possibility of sin. And specifically, God reveals two things to us because sin was possible. Number one, God knew that in the giving of his son, Jesus Christ, a sacrifice and atonement for us, it would be the clearest depiction of God's unconditional love for the world. The second thing that God reveals 
is that in giving his son Jesus Christ to conquer sin and death and destroy it forever and to initiate God's eternal kingdom, God knew that that would be the clearest way to depict his glory and power to creation. And in this world, those two things will be accomplished, which is why sin was made a possibility in the first place, but in the new creation, no longer a possibility. All right, thanks, Jonathan. Now we're gonna go back. We have one question each left um, with the, just maybe some questions that uh, require a little bit more explanation. The next question is for Greg. What happens to the Jewish people? Yeah, we know that what happens to the Jewish people, we know that God specifically called the Jewish people to be his chosen people for the purpose of bringing the Messiah through them. We know that, uh, that they rejected him. And uh, we know that in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this applies to the Jewish people as well. Uh, Paul says that Jesus came first for the Jew, then the Gentile. They, were reject they rejected him. We got to uh, come into the family. And yet, we do understand that in the end, when we get to the tribulation and past that, that there will be a certain number of Jews sealed that will witness to God. They will be uh, uh, protected as Revelation uh, tells us. Then Revelation 12, they're going to be protected to the end, till they see the return of Christ. Then all of Israel will be saved. And so God does have a purpose and plan in everything, and he does in the end for the Jewish people as well. All right, thanks, Greg. The next question is for Hunter. What will our relationships be like in heaven? So yeah, what will our relationships be like in heaven? We received a whole lot of questions uh, in this, and so I'm gonna try to answer some of the specifics. Uh, but I do want us to remember that we want to we want to we want to talk about what Scripture does tell us, and not just speculate on on what we think might be an answer. So we want to be clear. Uh, the first is that there will be no marriage or marital relations uh, in heaven. Um, I've heard some alls, uh, but here's the thing: is uh, uh, Jesus tells us in Matthew twenty two thirty. Uh, he says, for when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In this respect, they will be like the angels in heaven. Now, we're not going to be angels in heaven. We're going to be like the angels in heaven, as in our relationships with one another will be perfect. Uh, they will be beautifully satisfied uh, in the presence of Jesus. And so um, I think, you know, th what we find in marriage this side of heaven uh, the, the satisfaction that can come from it, the, the beauty uh, that comes, it's like a shadow, a glimpse of what we will experience in heaven, just we'll experience to the fullest uh, whenever we make it uh, to heaven. And so that's a, that's a wonderful thing for us to look forward to uh, in heaven and in the new creation. Now, uh, second thing is that in heaven there will be no divisions. We talked a little bit about that uh, with um, denominations, uh, but the same is true uh, about kind of male or female. 
female or, or any other kind of division that we uh, might have. Uh, Paul tells us in Galatians 3.28, he says, There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So instead of these walls, instead of these statuses that we, send, that we tend to live our whole lives trying to build uh, for ourselves and around ourselves, uh, all of that will be broken down uh, and we will find uh, our satisfaction in Jesus, our worth, our identity in Jesus alone. And so uh, great things to look forward to there. Uh, third, uh, there's scriptural evidence that we'll be able to know one another. Uh, while we're in heaven. We've talked about this a couple of times, but Matthew 17, the transfiguration of Jesus, uh, Moses and Elijah are clearly recognizable uh, to Peter, Paul, and uh, James, uh, John. Um, and Luke 16, Jesus uh, telling the story of the rich man that died and uh, the poor man Lazarus that died, we find that clearly they're distinguishable in, in Sheol. And so uh, I think that we will know uh, one another uh, in the new creation. Uh, we will join the saints in heaven. So here's the thing is that we will be perfect. And isn't that something to look forward to? Um, Hebrews 12.1 talks about that great cloud of witnesses. Uh, Paul encourages the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 3.13. He says, may he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy. Wow. Blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all of his holy ones. And so that kind of ties into our relationships with one another will be perfect then. Like all this enmity, strife, and, and digs that we give one another all day, every day, and I'm not just talking about you and your spouse, it's going to be a beautiful, wonderful relationship uh, that we get to live with one another uh, in heaven. Um, Hebrews 12, 23 says that because we have been uh, sprinkled by the blood of the lamb, that's Jesus, uh, that is what perfects us. Uh, and so whenever we die, whenever we come into uh, the new creation, uh, all these bad things that I hold on to and won't let Jesus have sometimes, uh, he will take them and he will clean them and he will make me perfect and I'll be beautiful, and so will you, and we'll get along better than even our wildest dreams uh, can imagine. Uh, there's so much good on this earth that we get to kind of see and, and experience from time to time. Just we'll be able to experience that forever. Won't that be something to look forward to? So I do think that uh, there are a lot of uh, things that we see with relationships in heaven, but the most important is that we will be with Jesus Christ himself, the ultimate man, the ultimate human, uh, the one who lived a perfect life, the one who loves you and has given his life for you. Uh, we get to live eternity with him, and that is, that is going to be a joyous day uh, whenever we get to see him face to face. Thank you, Hunter. And the last question goes to Jonathan. Do babies, children, people with intellectual disabilities, and or people who don't receive the gospel go to heaven? What about my loved ones who are not yeah. saved? So this is a, a very real felt tension for me because of two extremes that I live on. On one hand, and primarily a long time ago, I quit trying to decide who goes to heaven and who goes to hell because it's not my call and nor is it yours. But on the other hand, I have this really felt desire as a pastor and teacher to give you clarity and to give you comfort because this question comes out of angst and grief and pain and we want certainty. But even in that pain and that grief and that, that uncertainty, 
we really have to be careful that we hold on to what Scripture reveals to us and resist the temptation to speculate beyond that. Because when we begin to speculate, where do we stop? Uh, you really have to hold on to what Scripture teaches. So what does Scripture teach us around this area? Well, number one, uh, Revelation, uh, Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 5 are very clear that every single one of us are broken by sin, we're born into sin, and the result of sin is death. Not just physical death, but eternal death. However, we can be saved we can have an eternal home. And how does that happen? Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says that we are saved by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ. That means every single human being, whether it's uh, an intellectual disability, a baby, a child, someone who's never been shared the gospel with that person, maybe in a different part of the world, we're broken by sin. Our, our destination is eternal death unless we come to Christ by faith. And that's what scripture tells us. Now, we also have to be clear in how we define that. Because typically what we do is we define faith as, as Americans by a person's willingness and ability to articulate the truth of the gospel. Well, there's a couple of problems with that. Uh, number one, there are lots of people who would articulate the truth of the gospel and believe that that is true, but not surrender and submit to it. And even the demons in Scripture understand the gospel, and yet they're clearly not submitted by faith to Christ. But the second problem with that is, is we don't get to be the definers, the bearers of what is faith and what is not. And if I look at the Old Testament, there are hundreds if not thousands of individuals who were told are saved by faith before Jesus ever walked the earth. They had no ability to articulate the truth of the gospel as it centers on Jesus because he had not yet come. And yet they still surrendered to God, believing that God would bring salvation and they trusted him in obedience. And we're told that that obedience by faith was considered righteousness. And people like Moses and Elijah who lived long before Jesus are gonna be in heaven. Another part of that is we need to understand that faith is a gift of God. Scripture is pretty clear about that. That we have a responsibility to respond, but it's a gift of faith from God to us. And, and I'm not in a position to come and say that a child, a baby, someone who's never received the gospel, uh, a person who can't, for whatever reason of disability, can't articulate the gospel, I can't say that they don't have faith. They might have a believing, saving faith that we don't know about because they can't articulate it. And it just comes down to this truth that we need to be comfortable living in mystery. That, that God is a mystery because if I understand that everything that God understands, God's no longer God, he becomes a peer. And so we've gotta be willing to live in mystery, understanding what God does reveal, saved by grace through faith alone. We're all born into sin, so we all need that saving faith. It is a gift of God, and human beings are not the ones who get to create the box of what that faith looks like. That's God's call. God initiates, God completes, and we surrender to that. So what, what is our responsibility? Well, a couple of things. Number one is that I have to be responsible for myself when I do receive the gospel. When it is presented to me, I have a choice to make. Do I receive it or do I reject it? 
And I don't mean intellectually agree with it. I mean submit to it. Do I really submit to it? And God is moving in ways that we don't understand. I mean, Romans tells us that even creation itself testifies to the truth of the gospel. And God delivers the truth of Christ and has been testified in historically where individuals have received the gospel without someone who opened a Bible and presented it to them. That, that is a possibility. But when it's presented, we've got a responsibility of what we do with it. Uh, but the second thing, and, and this is where my, my pastoral heart comes in, and, and I just want to kind of have a family moment with us, is that I'm also responsible for what I do with that in my relationship with others. And think about it. So Greg brought this up, talking about our pets. Like, do we care more about our pets than we do our neighbors? Do we care more about our pets than we do our family members who are, are lost and, and don't have saving faith, or, that don't have a, a home waiting for them in heaven? So I'm responsible for sharing it sometimes with what I say and all the time with what I do, that I'm responsible for sharing that. It also means that I'm responsible for praying that God, I need you to give me a desire and the ability to boldly share the gospel at work, at school, in my neighborhood, on the ball field, everywhere I am, Lord, give me a desire and ability to share it boldly. And I'll be concerned about the outcome. You're responsible for the outcome, Lord, and I just want to share it. And ultimately, here's what it really comes down to. And we talk about this all the time as a church, is that we're responsible to pray. We pray, we pray, and we pray some more. We pray that God would give us saving faith, that we would surrender by faith to his grace. We pray that God would give a stirring in our hearts, a longing, a burning It'd be like Jeremiah when we say that I can't not say these things, that it has to come out of me. It is a burning within me. I've got to share the good news of Jesus with others. We pray that God will give others a saving faith. We pray that God would bring revival. We pray that God would show up by the power of the Holy Spirit as we gather as the body, that he would speak clearly the good news through every message and every conversation and every relationship, that the Holy Spirit would prepare conversations, that the Holy Spirit would set up circumstances and events in people's lives that they would see Jesus. We pray and we pray and we pray some more. So here's where we're going to close out our time. We don't want this time to just be an intellectual exercise. We want it to be a falling upon our knees before God, before his revelation, and saying, Lord, based on what you revealed to us, we want to respond in obedience by faith. And we have one specific way we can do that today, and that is to pray. And so these altar rails are available. We're going to sing one more song, and I'm going to pray for us. But as I say amen, if you want to pray for your own heart, Lord, I, I'm, I'm not sure I have surrendered to the gospel. Or you want to pray for a family member or a friend. Or you want to pray for your own boldness. Or you want to pray for our own church. That the revival would take place here. These rails are available for you. You can pray on your own. You can bring somebody with you. We've got all four of us are going to be here. If you want us to pray with you, just wave us over. But you, you don't have to. But we're going to invite the Lord by the power of his Holy Spirit to work and do what only he can do. Because I'm not responsible for who goes to heaven, but he is. And we want him to work. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for the truth of your gospel, the truth of your word. God, we thank you that from Genesis to Revelation, it points to Jesus. That we might know your love and your glory. 
But I also pray, Lord, that you give us a willingness to sit in mystery. And really, ultimately, that's what faith is. It's the ability and the willingness to take a step forward when I don't know where it leads. And so give us the gift of faith. And Lord, we're about to come to you, each of us individually, our hearts pursuing yours, maybe for our own life or somebody else, or maybe we're just praying for people we don't even know yet. And we're holding on to the promise that the Holy Spirit prays for us with words that are beyond our ability to understand when we don't know how to pray. So come and meet us in this, Lord, but Spirit, work. And even as we pray now, I pray for the hearts of people God, who don't yet know you, that, that you're working things out even now to present the gospel to them and to do what only you can do, Lord, as, as Paul tells us, that you'd remove the veil from their eyes to see clearly the truth. And we pray for revival, awakening, a move of the Spirit that goes beyond our ability to contrive or manipulate or understand, that you would just work beyond our understanding and abilities, God. And we pray this in Jesus' name and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.